I love it here, and my heart breaks a bit in the midst of the worship when I look around and I see like empty seats. I don't know if you get that. I think, why? You know, why aren't my neighbours here? Why aren't you buying that warehouse across the street as a kind of an overflow? This is such a happening church, and yet people just don't want to come, do they? It's amazing. I don't know if that breaks your heart. It breaks my heart on a good Sunday. I came across some statistics. You might have heard them. Uh, apparently, these are true. And if maybe your neighbors heard these statistics, they'd be queuing up in the car park to come in every Sunday morning. Uh, don't drive in cars. 18% of deaths occur on the road. Don't walk on the pavement. 14% of accidents happen to pedestrians. Don't stay at home. 17% of accidents occur in the house. Don't travel by rail, sea, or air. 16% of all accidents happen this way. Only 0.001% of deaths happen in church services. It's true, apparently. Go to church. It's the safest place on earth to be. So maybe they'd be rushing in if they realized how safe it was here. Um, but as you've heard, uh, Chris, uh, as he shoved off on his sabbatical, may he sabbatical in peace, he suddenly gave me a topic for my talk. He's never, I, I've spoken a few times, and he always lets me talk about whatever, you know. And I had a great talk lined up for you. I have to say, it was funny, it was inspiring, it was going to really anoint you. And just as he was going, he said, oh, I want you to talk on revival. And he then put a little caveat, you know, revival from your perspective, which was quite a bold move, actually. Uh, I hope he meant it to be. I hope it wasn't just a passing comment. Because as some of you know, you might have heard me before, I'm a Catholic. Okay? So when I've spoken here before, I've kind of stuck my head out of the closet. You know, I've been outed a bit, and you've been very kind to me. You haven't thrown anything at me. Uh, but to talk about revival from my perspective means I've got to talk about revival from a Catholic perspective. And in order to do that with integrity, I've got to really come out of the closet this morning. All right? And I'm conscious there are about 2,000 toes in this church this morning, and I'm probably going to tread on a few. Uh, I am really sorry. I hope you'll forgive me. Some of you have uh, been brought up as Catholics. Some of you have had a bad time in Catholic schools and worse. And I'm so sorry. And I know a bit about that kind of struggle. So please be gentle with me as I obey the boss as I talk about this topic. Is that all right? Um, you know, because if you think about it, you know, the Catholic Church and the vineyard, they're like poles apart, aren't they? You can't really get much farther apart from the vineyard and the Catholic Church. I mean, here, they come up here, they don't even wear shoes. I mean, they're up here with bare feet and socks, you know, like if they did that where I come from, they'd be excommunicated, sent to Rome, you know. So it's just a different planet, you know, it's all kind of come as you are. You get donuts here, we get custard cream biscuits on a feast day, you know, so, so very, very different expressions of the body of Christ, you know, and St. Paul um, would probably have described it based on on the scriptures that we have, as, you know, the vineyard being kind of the right hand, you know, hands are great, aren't they? They're attractive, they're powerful, they're creative, you know, we like our hands, don't we? And then he would have probably called, you know, where I come from, the Catholic Church, you know, the smelly old left foot, you know, and there's a lot of distance between the right hand doing its creative thing and that old smelly left foot, isn't there? And, but, you know, the, the danger is, and, I, and I'm sure it doesn't happen here, the danger is with the hand, the temptation of the hand is to kind of think it doesn't need anything else. You know, it kind of, it's so creative and powerful and it can do so many things. It kind of forgets or can forget the need for the old smelly feet. Well, if any of you have ever had a serious foot injury, 
you would probably say, you know, the feet are actually more important than the hand. Because unless those feet are working, the hands don't really do a lot. They can't go beyond a certain area. You know, we need both. And what I want to say to you today in the context of revival is that as the Catholic Church down there, the old dusty feet, you know, corned and carbuncled, been around for a long time, walked a long way. We need the hands. We need the vineyard. We and other churches like you. If we want to see revival come into our town, into our city, into our streets, we need you. We need your creativity. We need your worship. We need your flexibility, the way you adapt and and reach people where they're at. It's fantastic. We so need you. Or revival's never going to come to this land. But you know, I am convinced, I think, that you actually need where I come from as well. That you need the old smelly feet. And I believe that if we want to see the big revival, you know, the big one, not just little pockets of revival, towns here, people here, a few young people there, if we want to see the big one, the big sucker, that is going to turn this land upside down for Jesus, we're going to have to have unity in the body of Christ. And I want to honor Chris and Fliss and Linda and Richard and the team here and those who've gone before Richard. We've been hanging around you for quite a while because these guys have consistently reached out to our smelly left footers and they've ministered to us, they've loved us, they've supported us and not just because they're nice pastoral generous friends, as of course they are, but because they've seen a prophetic link between uh, us in the Catholic Church and you in the vineyard. You know, Nicky Gumbel, who I know quite well, up at Alpha, Holy Trinity Brompton, he's had a similar revelation for the last 15 years. He has pumped in a lot of energy, money, blood, sweat and tears. He's got into a lot of trouble in certain places to support the Catholic Church. And you know, they're also now pumping energy and money and blood, sweat and tears into the other foot, which is the Orthodox Church. You know, the geezers with the big beards and the big black hats. You know, they're in the body of Christ as well. And Alpha are just supporting them and ministering to them. It's, uh, it's quite amazing, really. So it's in that context that I want to talk to you today, if that's okay. And, um, I've never given a talk like this before, apart from about an hour ago. <laughs> um, so it's new to me. Uh, it probably won't be as exciting as the one that you were going to get. And I might never be invited back, so you might never get that one. Uh, But let's just give this a go. The the first thing I want to say is that there are a billion Catholics on the planet alive. A billion Catholics. That is half of Christendom. So half of the Christians on this planet are Catholic. And 10% of those Catholics, 100 million, are Jesus-loving, spirit-filled, moving in the gifts, loving their Bible kind of Christians. A bit like me and better. 100 million of us. That's quite a lot. But there are 900 million who aren't quite in that place. And that's my job and a few of my friends here today. And that's our job. We, I work full-time as an evangelist in the Catholic Church. And my main task is to get to the 900 million. It's quite a job. There's a lot of them. And to ignite them, switch them on, open their eyes to the gospel and life in the spirit. And we do it through films and preaching and whatever we can do. So pray for us if you wouldn't mind. It's a big job. The other thing that I want to say is that revival has always been at the heart of Catholic life, of the, of the teaching of 2,000 years of, of Catholic church. 
uh, we're just making a documentary on some of the heroes uh, who've gone before us, the heroes of the faith. It's changed my life. It's been amazing. Tim and I, a friend of mine down there, we just traveled around Italy filming, which is you know, a bit one of the perks of the job. But these guys and girls uh, have turned me around. I knew very little about them. Um, Patrick went to Pagan Island uh, in the 4th century. Ireland was thoroughly pagan. And he spearheaded a revival in that nation. He turned that nation. Within uh, his lifetime, that nation had become a fervent Christian country. And he did it craftily. He went for the warlords, one by one. He risked his life. He was beaten. He was, he was imprisoned. But he went for them. And through signs and wonders, raising the dead, healing the sick, calling fire down like Elijah, he did all sorts of amazing things he did. He won these warlords over to Jesus. They had profound conversions. Not political conversions, but conversion of the heart. And their families followed. And so one tribal gang after the next got converted. And that nation then went on to send missionaries throughout the world. Irish priests everywhere you go. Guinness and Irish priests, the two big exports. All because of one man's fervent missionary activity. Then we went, uh, we filmed in Assisi. I don't know if you've ever been to Assisi. You've got to go to Assisi. It's just stunning. And there you know St. Francis of Assisi. You've all heard of him. You know, Homer Simpson dresses up at him, as him sometimes. You know, we, this kind of Dr. Doolittle, animal-loving figure. I mean, he, he did love animals, and he was into creation, but he was far more. You know, Francis was like an up-and-coming pop star. He was like the Robbie Williams of his time. He was set for a career in entertainment. He, he was just a gifted, talented, charismatic figure. And as a young man, he met Jesus. He was profoundly turned upside down. He stripped off, literally, you know the story, I'm sure, every worldly belonging. He threw himself into the service of this Jesus that he'd met. And he met him particularly through the poor. And he began to minister God's love to the poor and the broken, the sick around Italy. And then that spread. The Franciscan order has been doing it for centuries. Remarkable. His, his fire and his love. In um, the 15th century, 16th century, St. Ignatius of Loyola. You might not have heard of him. But he was a big dude, Spanish. He was a soldier, great career in the military. Uh, got his leg almost blown off by a cannonball. And as he was recuperating very painfully in bed for about six months, he met Jesus. He was thoroughly converted. He fell in love with his creator and gave his life to helping other people have an encounter with Jesus. He formed the Jesuit order that then went and sent missionaries around the world and set up schools to educate and to bring Jesus to hundreds of thousands of people. He was passionate. You know, every day he wrote he, he, an amazing number of uh, letters and documents that he wrote. And in each of them, every day he wept profusely out of grateful heart for what Jesus had done for him and how uh, Jesus was weeping for the poor. Every day he wept. I don't. So these are great heroes of the faith. But I want to just come up a little bit more to our time. Well, not quite. But on New Year's Eve... 1899, on the eve of a new millennium, uh, the 1900s just about to come, uh, the Pope of the time was Pope Leo XIII. I didn't know he had 13 Leos, but there you go. Pope Leo XIII was compelled, it's all documented, on New Year's Eve 
to lock himself away in his little chapel in, in the Vatican and cry out all night long for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church and the world. And he did that obediently all night. Have you ever done that? I've never done that. All night he cried out. And you know, the very next day, January the 1st, 1900, the first Pentecostal outpouring happened in America, uh, to, uh, Topeka, Kansas. It's historians of Pentecostal movement tracked it to that day, the next day. And then a couple of years later, the Welsh Revival, and then the great Azusa Street Revival, you might have heard of, uh, in America, which really was when Pentecostalism got rooted. And now there are millions, you know, of Pentecostals around the world. And it's great just to see this thread. And um, and moving now to um, uh, the late 1950s, Smith Wigglesworth. I don't know if you've heard that name. Uh, he's one of your heroes of the faith. He, he was a plumber from Bradford who just got blown away by the Holy Spirit, joined the Pentecostal movement, raised the dead, healed the sick, and had a prophetic ministry, quite kind of rough. And uh, in the late 50s, he was at a conference where a young Pentecostal leader from South Africa called David Duplessis was one of the extreme leaders and uh, Smith Wigglesworth grabbed him, pushed him against the wall, and prophesied very brutally uh, that uh, David Duplessis was going to be used to bring Pentecostal fire into the mainline denominations. Now, David Duplessis didn't like the mainline denominations, had no contact with them, didn't even probably think they were in the body of Christ. And he, yet he suddenly had this big prophetic word hanging over his head. About the same time, or in the coming couple of years. Uh, the Pope of the time, Pope Pius the something or other, died. He'd been quite a guy. He'd, he'd been post-war Pope, kind of charismatic figure, had taken the church through a very broken time after the war in Europe and beyond. And he suddenly died. And the cardinals had to elect a new Pope. You've seen it on the telly, smoke up the chimney and all that stuff. You know, Very political. And these guys, they got together and they, they decided to, get to, to elect a safe bet you know, somebody who wasn't going to rock the boat, just one they could kind of get their heads together to find out who they should have in next. You see, they think, or they thought, that they were in control. <laughs> no way. The Holy Spirit can work even through our politics. It's amazing, isn't it? Because they elected this old fat man who became John the Twenty-Third, jovial, lovely. He'd been a peasant, big hands, and had spent his life as a diplomat in Venice in different places around the world. He was safe. He was elderly, coming for retirement, so they elected him thinking, you know, all would be well for a couple of years. Well, again, it's documented. As soon as they'd done the dib-dobbing, or whatever it's called, he got off his throne, walked over to the window in the Sistine Chapel, and opened the window and said, I'm letting the Holy Spirit in here. And the cardinals went, uh-oh, what have we done? Too late. And he did a most incredible thing, bold thing. The cardinals freaked out, tried to stop him, but he called a Vatican Council. Now, I don't know if you know what one of them is. We've only ever had two. It's a massive reshuffle, shake-up of the whole Catholic Church. So he, was, he called together all the bishops and cardinals from around the world, there are thousands of them, to come to Rome for two years, costs a lot of money, to completely get everything out of the closet, dust it down, sling some stuff away, bring some new stuff in. It was an amazing thing in 1964-65. Some of you might remember that happening. You know, the incredible thing was that David Duplessis 
with prophecy hanging over his head like a cloud, through an interesting process, I won't bore you with it, got invited to be an advisor at the Second Vatican Council in Rome. I mean, this guy, you know, and he went because of this prophecy, and he was able to speak in at critical moments of decision-making in the, in, the, in, the, in the hub of the Catholic Church. All sorts of things happened. We dumped Latin. It's helpful. We could start speaking in English. It's quite useful. Uh, or wherever country people came from. All sorts of reforms. But two key things came out of that council. And I believe David Duplessis' input was critical in both of them. One was that since the Vatican, Second Vatican Council, every Catholic, every one of the billion Catholics, is a missionary. We have hanging over our head the commandment to evangelize. You see, that might not sound a lot to you because you've got that hanging over you. You hear it every week. But up until then, it's, we, we paid, not a lot, a few pennies, for the missionaries to do that for us. We sent out nuns and priests and brothers to do the evangelizing. Suddenly, it got turned on us. It's now our number one job as Catholics to share the good news with our neighbors. Wow. And the other thing that came out of that council, again with David Duplessis involved, is that it is since the Second Vatican Council, every Catholic needs to be open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to move in the Spirit in the way that you would here. That's radical. Now, I'm not saying that every Catholic's doing all of that. That's part of my job. But it's in the fabric, the very heart of the teaching of the Catholic Church now. And so then, as a result of that, in the 60s, uh, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal was born. And uh, I'm a product of that. I was prayed over in 1985 by some old Irish ladies and a couple of nuns. I was a drug addict. They laid hands on me. They spoke in some weird language. I didn't know what they were talking about. Um, but all I know is I came out, having met Jesus, off drugs, transformed. So I'm so grateful for the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church. And about the same time, the house movement was born. You know, Ichthus, pioneer, and then across the water, John Wimber, remember him, right? And the vineyard movement. So you're products of this kind of move of the spirit that came out of the 60s. Last bit of history. You're doing very well. You've not thrown anything at me yet. The last bit, if you don't mind. In 1978, another pope was elected. First time in 450 years that they elected a non-Italian. The Italians have kind of sewn it up, do you know what I mean? And they elected a Pole, Pope John Paul II. You remember him, I'm sure. Charismatic figure. You know, he was an evangelist. Do you know, John Paul II spoke to more people live than any other human being has ever done, crowds-wise. He spoke to, to millions and millions of people. He traveled the planet, and wherever he went, every talk that he gave, every sermon that he gave, every letter that he wrote, every document had the gospel of Jesus Christ right in the heart of it. He commanded every Catholic to have a personal, living relationship with Jesus Christ. He was just a radical evangelist and very open to the Spirit. My boss... A guy called Charles Whitehead, who was uh, on a committee for the Charismatic Renewal uh, internationally, three times a year, would go to the little chapel where Pope Leo XIII had done his prayer. 
and would meet with John Paul II three times a year for about eight, nine years, I think. And every time he met with the Pope, the Pope would say, I want you to pray over me with that language you pray with, that gift of tongues. And he would make them lay hands on him and speak in tongues and prophesy over him. He said, because when you do that, I meet more of Jesus. It's the Pope. I don't know if you know all that stuff, but it's just groundbreaking, isn't it? Anyway, 1998. I'm in... St. Peter's Square. How many of you have been to St. Peter's Square? Come on, Ryanair, guys, get out there. It's cheap. It's a beautiful city. Best coffee in the world, lovely food, great wine. You've got history, you've got religion. St. Peter's, biggest church on the planet. Breathtaking when you walk in there. Anyway, I'm there with half a million young, spirit-filled Catholics and me. And I've got a press pass. I'm up the front. And uh, it was an electric moment. John Paul II prophesied, a prophecy that he would repeat over and over again. I think I was there for the first time. And he said, a new springtime is coming to the church and the world. You see, that's the language difference. A new springtime is revival. A new springtime is coming to the church and the world. And then he prayed that the Holy Spirit would be poured out. I remember, you could have heard a pin drop Vene Sancte Spiritus, that's Latin. A calm Holy Spirit, half a million young people, amen in response to this. We prayed that there would be a Pentecostal outpouring that would bring a revival into each of our countries in 1998 on the Feast of Pentecost. It was an electric moment. The new springtime is coming. You know what? Not to embarrass them, but there's some young Catholics here. The, the, the young leaders are going to bring in the new springtime are here today. Jack, Tom, uh, and uh, my kids. Are just, this, they're ready for the springtime. They're getting ready. Some of us are tired because we've been working in the winter, plowing hard ground. But a new springtime is coming. I heard the prophecy, and I trust the prophet. So very quickly as we finish, it's lunchtime. Uh, you know, from a Catholic perspective, what is this revival going to look like? What is this new springtime going to look like? Four things from a Catholic perspective. Firstly, it's all about Jesus. Jesus. It's all about Jesus being the truth, that there is no salvation outside of Jesus, that it's only in Jesus that we can find fulfillment and life. And that is the message that's got to go out if we want new springtime to happen. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, another one of the heroes of the faith, Catherine of Siena. She was a doctor of the Catholic Church. That means heavy-duty theologian. There are only 30 of them over the centuries. Who, you know, We listen to what they say, their reflection on the Bible, their teaching. It's like, you know, it's like Chris Lane, stamp of approval. You know. Catherine of Siena, doctor of the church, laywoman, said... Many things about hell and heaven and salvation. It's all in the heart of our teaching. But the one thing that, that echoes into this revival is that every day we must bathe in the blood of Christ because grace comes no other way. Every day we've got to stand under the shower of the blood of Jesus because that's the only place we're going to find forgiveness. It's the only place we're going to find healing. It's the only place we're going to find fulfillment. And it's through that that we will experience grace. Grace means we don't have to grit our teeth and earn our salvation. At the heart of Catholic teaching, 
at the heart of revival thought from a Catholic perspective is it's about Jesus in us doing it. And I think you'd probably say amen to that. The second thing is that uh, Jesus is the way. Way to where? He's the way to Abba. Every human being, the church would say, and it's the offer that we, we open out to the world, needs an Abba experience. Not the blonde girls from Sweden, you understand. Abba, Daddy, Father. I've just read Mark Stibbe's new book about the Father. It's challenging. We live in unprecedented times. There are more orphan spirits now than ever before. The devil he calls the orphan maker. And he's been very busy. And there are millions of people stumbling, struggling, limping through life uh, with a very poor self-image, very poor self-worth, not knowing that they are loved. And the offer that we have to our, our neighbors and our workmates, and you do it so well here, is that there is an Abba who loves you and you can come and drink from the stream of his delight. And it would change your life. It's changed my life. So that's very much number two. Number three is that, that Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life through the spirit that we've been singing about this morning. The spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ. So at the heart of Catholic teaching is that we've got to have a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is, um, is called in the Catholic teaching the friend closest to our hearts. Beautiful. How many need, do you need a friend? We all need a friend. Mother Teresa came to this country and was shocked by what she found. And she said, so many of you in Britain are suffering from a famine of the heart. The antidote to that famine is the friend closest to our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit. We need him. That's what we offer people. And the fourth thing from a Catholic perspective, and it's very important, is that this revival, this new springtime, is going to happen through local church. through We call them parishes. You call it what you're doing here. But in the, in the teaching of the church, it, it says that our parishes, our local churches, and you do this well, have got to be like the village well of old. The village well, 500 years ago in Hatfield, the center of Hatfield wasn't the Galleria. It was the village well. And you, you, know, you didn't have taps, you didn't have bottled water. You had to go to the well and draw water. And that's where you made friends and that's where you were supported. That's where community happened. You were sustained. And when the Catholic Church says, when our Catholic parishes and your churches and the Pentecostal churches, when they're, when they're living out a village well thing, then we're going to see revival happening because people are going to come running to us. And the other thing I have to say is, from, from a Catholic perspective, those, uh, those communities will be Eucharistic. We have a big thing about communion. Eucharist means thanksgiving. And so we would, we would believe that, that one of the ways of being sustained on this journey in the Spirit is through Holy Communion. It's a big thing for us Catholics. I'm going to finish. So what are the three things that we can do to bring in the new springtime? Because I guess you want to see that like I want to see that. Three things from my perspective, Catholic perspective. One is holiness. We've got a big thing about holiness. We've had monks and nuns locking themselves away, praying, contemplating, reading the scriptures, teaching us about walking in holiness. St. Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 4 that if we want to see uh, the great blessing that he describes in chapter 3, 
We've got to live our lives worthy of that amazing calling. When we uh, walk as kingdom builders in holiness, big things are going to happen. So holiness is a key. Secondly, bold intercession. Bold intercession is key. Uh, my last hero of the faith, you probably haven't heard of her, Therese of Lisieux. Uh, Lisieux is a little town in, in Normandy. Uh, I went out there a few weeks back to do some filming. Uh, and uh, in 1880-something or other, a 15-year-old girl called Therese manipulated her way into the convent, into an enclosed, cold order. No heating, you know, sparse life of prayer. It killed her. She lasted 10 years, died before her 25th birthday, became a doctor of the Catholic Church, one of those top 30. Why? I didn't get her at all till I started researching this woman, and now I'm one over to her. I can say it because she's here. I've got an Italian wife and a French girlfriend now because this girl, she just teaches me so much. And I tell you why she bamboozled her way in to the convent. Attractive young girl, why would you do that? Because she had two revelations that turned her life upside down and in turn have turned the Catholic Church upside down. One was that you didn't have to fear God. You didn't have to see God as distant and angry. She said she could run into his presence, jump on his knee, put her arms around him and say, Papa, Abba, which was groundbreaking in those days. And then she learned at a tender age that if she could be bold uh, in her love and receiving of love, she could be bold in prayers too. And she had a revelation from God that she was a co-redeemer with Christ through intercession. That God said, showed her that there were places in heaven ready to be filled by uh, neighbors, friends, and workmates of yours. And they will only get to heaven if you pray for them. You're a priest. I'm a priest. Now, I know we have priests who wear kind of, you know, and that, but this is what, through our baptism, we're all priests. That means we bring God to people and we bring people to God. And one of the key ways, she said, was through intercession. She rushed into that convent so she could pray from five in the morning until 11 o'clock at night and through the night often, just interceding for souls, saving souls. The first one she did was at the age of 14. Uh, Pranzini was a famous uh, serial murderer in France at the time and he'd killed a famous actress in Paris. So he was front page news. And uh, the whole of France was following his case. He was an atheist. He spat at the priests who came to, to him, and this was all reported. She went for him in prayer. She demanded that Papa would save his soul. And then she was really bold, and she said, and I want a sign that it's happened. Do you pray like that? Have you got that relationship with Abba? And uh, this Pranzini, on his execution day, Suddenly, out of the blue, to the amazement of everybody, the journalists, he asked for a cross and he kissed it three times before they chopped his head off with a guillotine. And she ticked it as number one. And then she went into that convent, interceding for thousands of souls to be saved. Remarkable woman. You know, if we want to see the new springtime come, and I'm challenging myself, we've got to pray it in. It's not just going to happen. We've got to call it down like we sang. Uh, Sam was leading us. We've got to, you know, if you pray, I will come. If you cry out, I will come. The springtime will come. With bold prayer, we can bring it in. And finally, the third thing we've got to do to bring in the kingdom is we've got to have a zeal, a passion for the lost. Paddy, Patrick, going off to Ireland. 
His motto for life, every day when he got out of bed, he said, I'm going hunting and fishing for souls today. That was the reason he lived. Everybody he met, he was ready with the gospel, and he was creative and very loving and pastoral when he brought them to Christ. We've got to be creative. We've got to be ready. We've got to be armed and ready with the gifts of the Holy Spirit so we can bring the gospel to the people that we meet. I'm done, though I'm probably done by two minutes over my time, but I want to just finish with a quick prayer. You see, this is only possible with the Holy Spirit. We can't do any of this without him. And I'm going to do something that's never been done at the vineyard before, might never be done again. I'm going to quote a pope on the big screen, okay? So, Tim, let it come. This is Pope Paul VI. He came after the big fat one, John Twenty-Third, and he was a great guy. And in 1975, he wrote the best booklet on evangelization ever called Evangelization in the Modern World. Fantastic. And uh, this is just what he said in summary in that book. We exhort all evangelizers, that's you and me, whoever they may be, to pray without ceasing to the Holy Spirit with faith and further, and to let themselves be guided by him as the inspirer of all their plans and evangelizing activities. And may the world of our time which is often searching with anguish, be enabled to receive the good news, not from evangelizers who are dejected, discouraged, impatient, or anxious, but from ministers of the gospel whose lives glow with further, who have first received the joy of Christ, and who are willing to risk their lives. Are you? Am I? That's a challenge. So that the kingdom may be proclaimed and the church established in the midst of our world, in the midst of St. Albans, that the body of Christ will be fervent and alive and pumping with the Holy Spirit, that the vineyard, that the city church, that Ashley Hall, St. Paul's, St. Albans and St. Stephen's, St. Bartholomew's and all the other saints I can't remember, all those little churches would just be fervently on fire with the Holy Spirit, working in unity and respect and bringing in the kingdom through uh, evangelizers, who are ready to lay their life down. I mean, would you say amen to that? Would you agree with that? Would you? I don't think there's anything you'd argue with there. This could be your mission statement, couldn't it? And it could well be ours. And just a final plea, that you would pray for us, those of us working in the Catholic Church, that, that you know, the whole billion of us would say amen to this. And if you would spare a prayer, you know, it's just a great mission field, but it needs prayer backing. So let's stand, let's pray. Sam's going to come sing a song as we head off to our salad lunch. But maybe we could just bow our heads. And I would just like to pray, Father, I thank you that a new springtime is coming. And I pray that you would burn that in us, that you would burn out discouragement, that you would burn out uh, despondency and disillusionment, that you would give us uh, eyes that can see what is coming that we would work for it, that we would lay our lives down for it, that our young people would be ready to give their lives, to, uh, to spearhead the new springtime in this land. And Father, I pray that you would bring unity, that we would love each other and respect each other, that the hand would love the old smelly foot, that the old smelly foot wouldn't be freaked out and challenged by the hand, that we would work as the body bringing in your kingdom to this land. Amen.
quick thing just to say, I've written a couple of books. If you've got Catholics, you're evangelizing, it might help to sling them a book written by a Catholic. They're upstairs. They're quite fun. Uh, just to say that might be a help for you uh, if that's your ministry.